I'm Aaron David Miller, and this is Carnegie Connects. Morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this world of ours. I truly hope you are safe and above all, healthy. I'm Aaron David Miller, and welcome to Carnegie Connects, a set and series of virtual conversations, at least for now, on issues of critical importance to America and to the world. Today, I'm truly pleased to welcome uh, the U.S. Ambassador to Israel, uh, a friend of mine, longtime friend of mine, and a friend of the Carnegie Endowments, uh, Thomas Arnides. Mr. Ambassador, and I will call you Mr. Ambassador throughout the entire interview. Uh, welcome to Carnegie Connects. It's really good to see you. Thanks, buddy. Uh, can I call you uh, Aaron David Miller? You can call me anything but late for dinner. All right, man. You should, you know, you should feel free to call me anything you want as well. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> Um, let's start with a few easy questions. You've been at the job now since December, uh, which in Middle East time uh, is really not very long. Give us a sense, if you can, of how you are approaching the job itself. Well, first of all, can I just uh, a moment of, of, of personal uh, 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 connection? I will people understand. Um, Aaron's my pal, has been my friend for many, many years. He and I worked together in administrations, but most importantly, we worked together at the Wilson Center. And he was my first call that I made when I was nominated to be uh, the ambassador to Israel, because I don't think there's anyone I know personally who has uh, the breadth of knowledge, the understanding, the political sense of what can get done, and without an agenda. So I I, I'm just want to tell you, thank you, Aaron, for being my friend, but giving me advice and counsel, and not shying away from telling me when I'm not doing something the right way. And I'm sure I'll hear a little bit of that on this interview. So thanks. Um, so uh, listen, is if you know, many people know, you know, I don't really have an ideology when it comes to Israel. I I care about one single thing, which is my north star, which is to preserve a democratic Jewish state. Uh, everything I do and everything I think about is within that context. So, you know, my, my very clearly my priorities was number one, to make sure that this kind of belief and reality, this unbreakable bond between our countries that I continue to articulate. Uh, everywhere I go, everywhere I say, everywhere I move, I continue to repeat and remind people there's an unbreakable bond between uh, the United States and Israel. There's an unbreakable bond between uh, Joe Biden, President Biden and this uh, in Israel. There's a guy who calls himself a Zionist, he's been to Israel multiple times, probably more about the region than any single living or dead president. Uh, and so I am honored for that. Second priority um, is to make sure that the security of the state of Israel uh, is first and foremost in all of our minds. And you all know that through the MOU, through uh, the billion dollar commitments, through a continuation cooperation from the, from the, from the Defense Department, to the IDF, to the, our, you know, um, Shabbat and Mossad, and all the things you need to know. So security number one, two, and two is to keep the vision of a two-state solution alive. You know, Aaron, you and I have talked about this many times. Listen, I'm under no illusions here that I'm going to be getting a, a, a moment in the Rose Garden where they present me with my um, Nobel Peace Prize. But we can make sure that we, we as an administration, keep that uh, vision alive. I think it's important uh, for the region uh, as well and take care of the Palestinian people at the same time. Uh, and then lastly... You know, I work on a lot of the economic issues. Listen, these Abraham Accords were hugely successful, very important. Uh, this is the reason why Israel can defend itself. 
and it's the strongest is on the world stage is they have a very robust economy. Economy is driven not only by technology, but many uh, industries. So the combination of all those things and many, many more are kind of my priorities as I think about uh, this ambassadorship. And let me just start right away. It's the greatest honor of my life um, to represent the United States of America and Israel. In Israel, where, by the way, the country, our U.S. United States, America, is very popular here. So it's nice to be in a place that people love you. Uh, not me, maybe not necessarily myself, but certainly love the United States of America. So it's a great, great honor. Yeah, you know, and above all, of course, carrying out the president's policies and, as you well know, safeguarding the interests of the United States, which is, I mean, Israel occupies a critically important place in the region uh, and is one of our closest allies and friends. I want to come back to this in a minute, but let me ask another question about your your, your perceptions. What what surprised you the most? Surprised you the most? Um, in looking at and analyzing Israel and Israelis? You know how close we are on security issues. You know, I, I knew it intellectually. You know, I was, you know, as you know, I was the Deputy Secretary of State. I've been involved with this for a long time, but it is, it is, it should give comfort to both Israelis and Americans who care about this place. The defense cooperation with Israel goes both ways. You know, the, the IDF and, and the DOD, it's not just on the, just from the generals or the, or the or the guys at the corner offices, it seeps throughout the uh, the the security agencies, and it is really the core part of this relationship. and And it gives me, and it's not. But we use the benefit of Israel as well. It's, it goes both ways. They help us on intelligence gathering uh, as well to keep the United States secure. We help them obviously uh, with theirs. And but this relationship is ironclad and and very important in the psyche of Israel, and it's real. Now, sometimes you talk about things and it becomes a perception, but that I think is uh, obvious to me. Look, the, the reality of this is, I, I say to you before we started this, you know, everyone cares about this place. It's remarkable. The two words I probably should not have used is come visit because everybody is coming to visit and it, not just my friends, but, you know, it's remarkable. You know, I've had 75 members of Congress, 78 members of Congress. I had lunch today with two, two of them today. Um, every day, members are coming, uh, governors, mayors, uh, people who, you know, have big contributors to UJA, you know, every temple president. I mean, everyone cares about this place and not just Jews, Arabs, Christians, Indians. I mean, across the board. So I'm I'm a, I'm astonished. A country of nine million people who, by the way, uh, as we know, today is celebration of uh, Israel's uh, independence. It's the 74th year of its birth, uh, as they say. And I was honored to be at President Herzog's house just 42 minutes ago as I drove uh, from uh, Jerusalem to Tel Aviv to do this. So it's, it's a great time to be here. It's a, it's a beautiful country, and it's a great honor. Yeah, I mean, given your personal schedule, come visit are two very dangerous words. I'm, I, I, I sense that. Um, in terms of your own personal observations, what do you think Americans don't understand about about this place? Your greatest misconception, um, you know, um, misperception. Well, I, you know, I don't. I, I think first of all, I think it's it's clear that Israel deeply cares about the relationship with the United States. I mean, like, 
someone told me who was a former foreign minister in this country, you, you can't be the prime minister or leader of this country without people believing you a strong relationship with the United States. So that people, I mean, I think you knew, understood that intellectually, but it's in the, it's, it's in the grain of people here. It's just, it's a comfort level. It's a connection. It's a, it's part of the moral fiber of this place. And I think to me, people don't recognize, even when we disagree, and we disagree all the time. You disagree with your friends all the time. It's just, but at the end of the day, you cannot get sideways with the United States. And by the way, it goes both ways. You know, uh, American presidents have a hard time going sideways uh, with the state of Israel too, because it's such an important country in a lot of people's minds, uh, both Jews and Christians and across the uh, the spectrum. So um, that is kind of a makes. It's I don't know if it's a misperception, but I want to emphasize how important. Um, that is, and listen, and just to be clear, they are living in a very dangerous neighborhood. I mean, I sit here and, you know, I spent, um, I sadly went to all of the shivas, um, 14 shivas since I, the last month and a half of victims of terrorists. It's, it's you know, you don't know it till you walk into a family that a kid who's 27 years old and I'm holding the hand of his girlfriend who he just got engaged to and know that they, you know, just literally... A block from here, two blocks from the embassy, you know, two, two 27-year-old kids got uh, shot by a terrorist, you know, not just the, the the terrorist that happens here, but they're in a pretty lousy neighborhood, you know, you got Syria and Lebanon, you got Hezbollah, uh, and, and that are constantly a threat, you've got elements in Gaza who are continually threatening, and let's not forget the little country called Iran, um, so they live in a very, very dangerous neighborhood, yes, they can defend themselves without question. But let me tell you something. It's not for the, I said, I did an uh, interview for the Jerusalem Post. And I, the title was, it's not for the faint-hearted. It is not for the faint-hearted, that being an American ambassador. So uh, it is a very complicated neighborhood. One more question before we moved on to the nature and character of the relationship. I went back and checked um, since the 1940s, since independence, 1948, I think there have been 13 or 14 U.S. ambassadors to Israel. The vast majority of them have been foreign service officers, careerists. There have only been three, I think four, who have been political appointees. Now, I've known foreign service officers that are great. I've known foreign service officers that aren't so great. I've known political appointees that are wonderful and political appointees that are not wonderful. So I guess my the final question on, on the personal side is, what do you think makes a really good American ambassador, not just to Israel necessarily, but what is it that you have to have in order to be effective, to carry out the president's policy, to safeguard American interests, to understand the nature of the country, their, sen their sensitivities, their fears, their hopes, their aspirations? What kind of person does it take to be an ambassador? God, that's a great question. I mean, I, I think it takes, um, first of all and foremost, you are the representative of the president. So you better be in sync with the president. So if you have a different ideology or a different view or some sense of what you think, this is not about Tom Nines. This is about representing Joe Biden. That's an easy thing to do here because Joe Biden is, calls himself a Zionist, cares deeply about this place. So I, that's an easy part of the job. Um, you know, remember, you for a place like this, not only is it, a massive management job because one of the largest embassies in the world and complicated by how the embassy is split. It's, it's a sense of um, 
deeply caring, you know, caring about the country in which you're in and making sure the Israelis know you care about the country, right? The Israelis in any country, they want to know that the person that's in that seat cares about them, but understands that you're the representative of the United States of America. You know, ambassadors tend to come to these countries and get clientitis, like I like I'd like to say that they forget they're actually not the ambassador for the country, but they're actually the ambassador to the United States to the country. And so I'm, uh, I, I think it's imperative that people understand that, but they can't feel when they watch you on television that you don't get it. You don't understand what they're going through to understand what the, the pressure, especially in a place like this, you know, going through the terrorist uh, stuff that I've been through, they understand that I deeply care about these people. I deeply care about the security and that I am representing the United States, but my heart is, is here to help them uh, get through that. You know the story. I, I don't think it's apocryphal, although I'm trying still to confirm it. When the late uh, Secretary of State George Shultz met the outgoing U.S. ambassador to Country X, he had a huge globe in his office. That I know to be a fact. And he'd ask the outgoing ambassador to point out the country. What is your country? Shultz asked the ambassador. And nine times out of 10, the ambassador would point to Ghana or Kenya or the former Soviet Union or China, and he'd put his finger on the United States. That notion that protecting American interests is critically important and the overriding objective of diplomacy and, or, and U.S. ambassadors is, is critical, particularly in this relationship. Because as you know, there have been ups and downs and tensions. I worked for Republicans and Democrats, some of whom had very stormy relationships with the state of Israel. And there's a feeling in the last 20 years, I would say, that increasingly the cohesion that has bound the two countries together, which is a high coincidence, Mr. Ambassador, of interests and values. That's what makes the U.S.-Israeli relationship so unique. There's this high degree of coincidence of interests and values that those interests and values have begun to diverge. I've heard some people describe Israel as Venus and uh, the United States is Mars. Do you do you think that in any way a fair assessment that in fact there has been more stress in the last twenty years on uh, that confluence of interests and values um, that uh, it has not been good for the uh, the healthy resilient relationship? Is that a fair critique? Do you think? No, I don't think it's a fair critique. I mean, I, I listen. This, this is a country that is, uh, was born out of necessity, okay? Jews had nowhere to go. The country is, is 74 years old. It's, it's a democracy. And a democracy in a region which, again, does not many of them, right? You know this better than I do. It's a democracy with all the ups and downs of a democracy, complicated governments, governments or coalitions, Right-wing governments, left-wing governments, governments that last a week, governments last two years, um, uh, you know, a place that has been seen multiple wars in its short birth, you know, a country that's got, you know, very complicated issues vis-a-vis uh, the Palestinians and other, you know, problems within the, within the, the within this country. It's a country of nine million people. Listen, this is a complicated place. You've made your career of focusing on this place, um, which, you know, we, as you know, you know a lot about. So I don't, listen, 
the end of the day, what brings us together are two things. This unbreakable bond between the United States and Israel, without question. It's, it will have ups and downs, they'll have critiques, there'll be complications, but it's unbreakable. And two, we're, we're a democracy. The United States is a democracy, and so is Israel. And I think that's very important for us never to forget. And that's ultimately, at the end of the day, that's what keeps us together in bonds. Are we going to have disagreements? Absolutely. Are we going to believe that they should be doing things they don't want to do? Without question. Uh, they're, they're, they're a complicated coalition of government in this current government that's going to cause us all sorts of anxieties. Um, but I just think it is the, the, the people worrying about um, this, the breaking of the bonds between two countries, I think is uh, a complete misnomer. And friends uh, argue sometimes, but at the end of the day, they're friends. Right. Well, in fact, you worked in the previous administration, um, the Obama administration, in which there was uh, a pretty fraught relationship on issues that actually divided rather than brought the two countries closer together. One was Iran, which we'll talk about, and the other was what to do about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, no, I'm not. I mean, the bond is, is has been resilient. In fact, one of the most extraordinary thing things, I think, is that um, the two countries have managed to manage their differences. But sometimes I get concerned about the nature and health and strength of this relationship as you get a certain divergence, uh, particularly in the values proposition, which I think you're right, is really the glue that, that binds the relationship together. Let's move on to Israeli domestic politics. Henry Kissinger famously said, he was exaggerating, but there is truth here that Israel had no foreign policy. It just had domestic politics. I think the average length of the average length of an Israeli government since independence, since 1948, is 1.9 years. How do you deal with, and you're dealing not with a coalition cabinet crisis, but you're dealing with a, uh, I don't know what you'd call it right now, a hiccup um, uh, in the Israeli government? Um, no longer has a majority. How how do you deal with uh, turbulence uh, and unpredictability very often of Israeli politics? Well, let's step back for one second. So um, I'm a little bit biased here. Um, I and I think I speak for the administration. We really like this administration, um, this government. Uh, as an, as personally as an American Jew, this is a beautiful thing, as Bennett says. I mean, you have a a prime minister who is center-right, first keep-a-wearing prime minister, I think. Uh, you have a foreign minister who is probably center, maybe even center-left a little bit. Uh, you've got a cabinet full of some very conservative people, and then you have a cabinet of merits and labor, very left. And you have Mansour Abbas, the first Arab to ever serve in a government, uh, an Israeli government. How cool is that? How unbelievably beautiful is that as someone i don't care who you are this is this is a democracy led by a coalition led by people with all sorts of different ideologies all working towards one objective which is to keep israel a strong democrat jewish state so i'm i am listen there's no question it's complicated man i mean i was with prime minister bennett today uh and you know i don't envy him trying to manage this in a way that keeps the government together. It's complicated. I mean, every day he has to work it. But I'm, he is a friend of, of the United States. Uh, we're a friend of his. Um, the, 
the alternative uh, prime minister, which is uh, uh, Foreign Minister Lapid. Uh, he's also a, an unusually uh, great human being as a as a as a human being and as a as a foreign minister. And I could go through the whole cabinet. I deal with all of them. Thanks for listening to Carnegie Connects. This show would not be possible without the generous support of our donors. If you'd like to support us, visit ceip.org slash donate. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to tune into the conversation live? Click the link in the description below to receive invitations to the next Carnegie Connects. Now, back to the show. I mean, I, I, I mean, Kissinger was probably more right than wrong, uh, particularly for a small country in a dangerous neighborhood. Consensus is critically important. Um, and no, I, I don't think any single Israeli party has ever had a outright majority in the Knesset and has never ruled alone. Every Israeli government was a coalition government. So can I pause you one second? How great is that, though? I mean, how great is that? This is, a, this is a country of 9 million people. 20% of the country uh, in, in Israel are Arabs, right? So th- th- how great this is. And, you know, that, yes, it probably doesn't make for great history books as it relates to you know, how to get, you know, how to work together. But this country, it represents a lot of different people. And people don't remember. I, you know, I have now been introduced to the Druze community and the Arab community in Nazareth and when I go travel around this country and I see all these different ethnic groups, all living in Israel, all understanding it, you know, I go, I, you know, I, I, it is an important part of who this place is as a, as a, as a country. So I, yes, it can be maddening for those of us who are supposed to be ambassadors and working with everyone, but it is a pretty interesting place to be. Right. And I, and the consensus notion is important because it, it really does create additional constraints on a system to make core decisions. I mean, Israel doesn't have, as you know, doesn't have a formal written constitution. And I'm certain that one of the reasons is if the Israelis devoted the kind of time to actually creating a written document on what the state is, what its identity is, where it is, uh, at a time when they were struggling for their independence, they they might not have made it. But that creates a certain measure of well, an additional constraint on decision making. Um, I was also going to ask you, you know, um, I, I spent a, a fair amount of time myself in various administrations, and it is an issue because I, I do want to get to the issue of peacemaking. And whether or not this is coincidence or not, I, I mentioned to you this earlier, that the times where there have been tension within the U.S.-Israeli relationship, specifically regarding the pursuit of Arab-Israeli peace, there's also been an incredible amount of progress. Now, Henry Kissinger might say that, Jimmy Carter might say that, James Baker might say that, the three Americans who managed to actually do something. Now, we're going to get to the Abraham Accords, which was a set of agreements reached by an administration in which there was very little, some tension, but very little tension with Israel. But it does raise the question, Tom, that in a negotiation, a mediator, if it's the United States, 
needs to maintain a certain amount of detachment and independence of decision-making if, in fact, it's ever going to reach an agreement. Kissinger, Carter, and Baker went through a lot of tumult with the Israelis and, and also with the American Jewish community before they, re, they made the progress that they did. So I was just wondering, you, you, there is no peace process now, uh, but I wonder if there's a, you have any sense that, that, that the United States, to maintain its own credibility, needs to maintain a certain amount of detachment uh, as a fair and effective broker between two sides to reach an agreement. Does that resonate at all? Yeah, I, I think, listen, uh, I mean, I, I think the president said it well. I mean, he, you know, I don't think any of us sit around today and, and think about how we're going to engage ourselves in a massive peace process, okay? My objective is to do really a couple of things on this. One is to keep the vision of a two-state solution alive. Not very complicated, guys, because to keep a vision of a two-state solution alive means you talk about it all the time, and then you got to make sure that the parties don't do things that make that impossible to do. Okay, and we know all what those issues are, right? And and my my job is to limit that. So both from the Palestinians' perspective and what they do or don't do, the Israeli side from what they do and don't do, so people don't give up the vision of this. Because I, as someone who's now been here enough and has studied this enough. The option of a one-state solution is a disaster for a democratic Jewish state, in my humble view. I think shared by many people, uh, not everyone, but a lot of people would, would envision the same thing. So my objective is, which is to spend time, you know, obviously making sure that Israel knows that there's an unbreakable commitment to Israel, unbreakable security commitment to the state of Israel, but also try at the same time to help the Palestinian people. And that's actually doing practical things to make their lives better. And that can be anything from, you know, making sure that they have 4G to making sure that their pensions are done and healthcare and education. This stuff is really, really important to the success uh, of that ability to keep a two-state solution alive. Um, I think we both agree that the, the chances of any, any imminent or foreseeable prog uh, progress toward a two-state solution uh, uh, right now is not in the cards. So if the administration's objective is to create a better environment, promote security cooperation, economic cooperation between the two sides, if that's the objective, and I think it's logical, for, particularly for administration that right now is preoccupied with much, well, well with issues that are, are far, more, far more threatening to, to its interests than the pursuit of Israeli-Palestinian peace. But creating a better environment is still a tough proposition. This, you know, as you know, this is not one hand clapping. Palestinians bear their fair share of responsibility uh, for not creating that environment, whether it's incitement or martyrs payments or violence and terror and the loss of their monopoly over the forces of violence within their own society. You've got, you, you do not have one gun, one authority, one negotiating position, right? The Israelis obviously do their fair share of things uh, that undermine um, and prejudge an outcome. Um, you had some pretty tough words, as you know, uh, on settlements uh, in March. 
before, I think, Americans for Peace Now, you said we can't do stupid things that impede us for a two-state solution. And you rightly talked about prioritizing. You played an important role in preventing E1 from from coming to fruition. But help help us think through how you look at the issue of Israeli behaviors. You're not the ambassador to the West Bank or Gaza or to the Palestinian Authority. Um, so you're focused largely on Israel. How do you look at the settlements issue? Well, I mean, um, the position is quite simple. I represent the United States. The position of the United States has been from Democrat and Republican presidents for a long time that we don't support settlement growth. That's not new. That's not a new position. We're, that's our, been our position and continues to be our position. I think the question for us is going to be what we can do uh, to keep the parties from doing things that make impede the ability for a two-state solution. And those are things that I work with the Israeli government and the Palestinians, as you point out. This is, you know, one-hand clapping is a great way to describe it. You know, everyone's everyone's got faults here. I'm not, I don't equate one set of issues that the Palestinians do or don't to another one that the Israelis do. Each of them need to be addressed individually, which I try to do. Maybe not always as artfully as I should, but try to do. And to work with each set of priorities. As you know, you know, we're, we, you know, we have a very robust uh, Palestinian uh, unit in, in, in uh, Jerusalem that works very closely with the Palestinian Authority and trying to make life better. And as you know, you know, we've now um, increased the assistance of the Palestinian people to about $450 million. It was zeroed out during the previous administration. That helps, shows that, that we're trying to help the Palestinian people. At the same time, we did a you know a billion dollars for for Iron Dome. So I again I I'm I am I it is I'm I try to do the best I can. I meet with everyone. I talk to everyone. I try to have an open mind. I don't have an agenda. I think the agenda is a democratic Jewish state and a vision of a two-state solution. Not it's complicated, but pretty clear articulated. Let's move on to Iran. Um, That's an easy topic. It's not your brief. Our mutual friend, um, Mr. Malley, is sadly, is working sadly it's everyone's brief that is <laughs> working on that. Um, the Biden administration clearly wants to see a return to the to the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the Iran Nuclear Agreement. Um, the Israelis are less enthusiastic, to say the least, about entering into another agreement. How do you s- try to manage that that gap? Which is there? It's. I must say, and you were right. The the, the Bennett government has been much more adroit um, and smart about how they express their opposition. And consultations between the U.S. and Israel are exceedingly close. How do you how do you manage that? Because that is, from Israel's point of view, an existential issue, probably the most important security issue. Uh, that they face, how do you begin to manage it and maintain maintain a sense of trust and confidence? Okay, let's step back for one second. So it's it's obviously you know way more about this than most people in their life will know. So as you know, um, the, the the Obama administration uh, negotiated at the JCPOA. Um, it wasn't certainly wasn't perfect. We can we can we can have a long debate about its faults or its successes, but let's, it was what it was. Um, it was um, 
one of the one of the things that I think one of the critiques we can argue appropriate or not one of the critiques was that the Israelis were surprised they weren't engaged in the process they woke up one day and realized that we we're negotiating with the uh, with the Iranians and they were unhappy about that President Biden made it very clear to uh, all of us especially those who were in the midst of negotiations that there would be no daylight between Israel and the United States visa was going on in Vienna on the diplomatic route, the, the trying to get back into JCPOA. He made that commitment going into the administration, and we have fulfilled that 100%. I don't, if you, I don't think you could bump into an Israeli military national security advisor that wouldn't say that they've been completely involved and engaged in every step of the way that we uh, were attempting to try to come back into the JCPOA. I am in no way suggesting that they like it. That's a different issue, or they're so 100%. But, but I think it's a very important thing because it creates trust. Trust is very important. And I think that's what the president committed to. Jake Sullivan um, has been in the midst of all this. Um, you know, we Brett McDurk, who has been the lead on this, uh, working uh, with, uh, with, our, with Rob Malley and our negotiators and Barbara Lee. We've been all over this, okay? Um, we're at, we are where we are. If you believe what you read in the New York Times, um, the administration continues to want to have a diplomatic solution to what I believe is an enormous problem, which is the aggression of Iran. Uh, but regardless, we get a diplomatic solution. The president's been very clear. We will not stand by to let the Iranians obtain a nuclear weapon. He's said it multiple times. The secretary of state has said it. We've all said it. It will work with the Israelis to accomplish that. The Israelis obviously have every ability to defend themselves, and we never tie the hands of the Israelis as it relates to their own defense. So, um, you know, stay tuned. I mean, listen, obviously, um, you know, we're, we're still working the diplomatic channels. The Iranians know what they need to do vis-a-vis uh, if we're going to come back and get a JCPOA complete or a J- JCPO 2.0, whatever you might want to do or call it. So we're working uh, collectively uh, with the Israelis. But the most important thing is there's no daylight about what's going on with this government, with the United States. Uh, I think that's very important in building trust. And again, I'm not asking you to divulge any confidential conversations. But Oh, yes, you are. Well, I'm yes, not. You are. No, I'm not. I wouldn't expect that you would. But I, I'm just trying to understand the logic here. The, the agreement, let's be clear, is a highly flawed, if functional, enterprise. It, it It's designed to buy time. It can't stop the Iranians from enriching. It may constrain their capacity to do so. But when the Israelis say to you, we're against the agreement, do they also identify what are the implications of no agreement? I mean, that, I guess that's my question. They're, this is a very pragmatic, pra- practical um, government, particularly on the security side, the security types. Um, I'm just wondering, um, no agreement might lead to Iran's ramping up and effort to weaponize, or it might not. Um, they don't see it as the lesser of two bad outcomes though correct you know i i think that the israelis and and their government have all sorts of contingent planning going on 
door number one, door number two, door number three. I think they understand uh, the risk. Listen, they live with this every day, every single day. You know, I talked to the prime minister. I talked to Defense Minister Gantz. Their responsibility is to protect the people of Israel. And I'm enormously confident they they, uh, have plans in which to do that. We believe, if we could, we believe we should try to attempt to have a diplomatic solution. You're 100% right. This is not a good situation. You know, we can debate how we got here. We can debate should we have, should the agreement ever been ripped up in the first place? I'm not going to sit here and do revisionist history and where we are and how far along this program is. I think you can read about that in the New York Times. Um, you don't have to listen to the American ambassador to Israel explain that to you. But it's a serious issue. We're working closely with Israelis, and we stand by and stand ready uh, with the Israel to make sure that Iran does not obtain a nuclear weapon. Full stop. Okay. Um, the clock is ticking down. There are just a couple more questions I wanted to ask. One is Ukraine. Um, clearly, the Israelis have a variety of interests that they need to protect. Syria, the state and fate of Ukrainian Jews, Russian Jews, um, with perhaps Syria being paramount. Um, and from what I understand, there is lockstep uh cooperation between the administration and the Bennett government on Ukraine. But let me ask you flat out, as Israel's, as America's closest ally, and as the only democracy with all of its imperfections in this region, and as a country that, um, whose origins partly were driven by the genocide of six out of every seven Jews in Europe, during the, the Holocaust, is there any sense of disappointment on the part of the administration that the Israelis have not been, I understand they have their own interests, everybody has their own interests, that the Israelis haven't been more forthcoming and willing to do more? I know they set up a field hospital, I know they provide humanitarian assistance, I know they're now considering non-lethal military assistance to Ukraine. But I just wonder, is there any sense that they could be doing more, uh, particularly on, on sanctions or, and or dealing with the oligarchs? Um, we're in constant communication with the Israelis on this topic, daily, sometimes hourly. You know, Bennett's uh, conversations with Putin were all cleared and worked on with the administration. Everything we've asked Israelis to do, they have done. Uh, we feel very confident that the role that Israel is playing vis-a-vis Ukraine uh, is in cold lockstep with the United States. So I, you know, my, my very simple view is, yes, there are, they're, they're uniquely positioned in both ways, uniquely positioned to have influence over the Russians vis-a-vis the relationships. Uh, they're also uniquely vulnerable given the fact that the Russians are on their northern border. But there is nothing, you know, that we have not asked the Israelis to do that they haven't fulfilled. And we are, are lockstep in our commitment to end this war. And, you know, as you know, just, you know, t- three, two days ago, the former minister, you know, Lavrov made some re- insanely stupid comments about Zelensky. And it was condemned by in the strongest terms by the prime minister and the foreign minister, obviously the world community. This, this sound, Lavrov sounded like a guy who's losing the war. 
Um, but regardless of that, we're we're quite um, we're we're lockstep. We feel comfortable with the Israelis' position vis-a-vis uh, Ukraine. Okay. Final question in the minute that remains: um, the president will be visiting uh, you, perhaps among other places, sometime in June. Hasn't been confirmed. Uh, he's proposed. Bennett's invited. And again, I asked this question without expecting any any sort of answer that would compromise uh, um, any discrete conversations. But if you, if you, the U.S. ambassadors, were giving the president one piece of advice, not on private diplomacy, but on one impression you hoped he would leave in this region after his trip, what what do you think he'd want to convey more than anything else? Well, let's talk about the trip to Israel when it when it when and if it gets confirmed. I um, it's very simple to me. This guy gets it. He understands the Middle East. He understands the complications. He understands the history. He's been in the room. He's made the decisions. He knows the players. He's known every prime minister from Golden Meir. It is not uncommon that he knows the regional players in a huge way, and he understands it. You know, he's been there when he made the big decisions, for good and for bad. He's got the battle scars to prove. For people to understand, this president has an unbreakable commitment to the state of Israel. I think that's exceptionally important, right? I mean, we're, you know, we're looking back at the history of this guy and how many times he's been to Israel. I mean, it's remarkable, okay? So the Israeli people need to understand that um, this is who he is, and I think they all understand that fundamentally, but we have to obviously make sure they understand it's in his... He calls himself a Zionist, right? He calls himself a committed Zionist to this place. You know, on a broader set of points, the broader set of the region, um, I think people understand they're, they're playing with a guy who has been around. This is what age is beneficial, Okay? He's been around. He's seen it. He's been at the forefront of every military confrontation, every arms sale, every you know every foreign you know um, uh, you know uh, activities, sales of arms to countries. He's been a part of every part of this. So you're dealing with a president of the United States who is engaged in the Middle East, who cares about the Middle East, understands it's important to the Middle East. And for me, you know, my advice is to make sure everyone sees that and understands. That, it doesn't have to be factual. That is, in essence, uh, I, I would argue, in, in anticipation of this trip, the message that precisely needs to be conveyed. Because as the Eagles sang in Hotel California, you can check out any time you want, but you can never leave. And we may, be, we may think we're done with the Middle East, but clearly the Middle East is not done with us. Mr. Ambassador, I want to thank you uh, on this very busy day. Uh, come visit. Um, By the way, you, my friend, you, my friend, when I say the following, come visit, I actually mean yeah, it. Yeah, I'll okay? try. So you, my friend, <laughs> you have a real invitation. I appreciate okay, I that. I, I wish I had a house for you to, to to hang out with, but that's all the, that's for your next chapter of your book. Got right it. now, we're not going to get into that because it will make me cry. But, but my important thing is, <laughs> please come see me. You've been a great friend. Uh, I appreciate you every day. Please call me with advice and counsel because I there's no one smarter on these issues than you are. So I'm honored that you even let me spend a few minutes with you and 
Uh, and thank you for everything you've done for me. Feelings are mutual, Mr. Ambassador. And thanks again for sharing your time, your expertise, uh, your candor um, with the audience and with Carnegie. Take care. Thank you, buddy. Thank you for listening to Carnegie Connects, a production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Views expressed are those of the host and guest panelists, and not necessarily those of the Carnegie Endowment, which takes no institutional positions on public policy issues. Subscribe to Carnegie Connects on popular platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast platform. Like what you heard today? Learn more at carnegieendowment.org slash Carnegie Connects. Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Catherine Buchanan and Cliff Jayapranata are our executive producers. I'm Aaron David Miller, and until next time, think positive and test negative.